Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of Max's Minutes. Um, today's episode, we're going to be talking about design and the influence of fashion and how real estate is this new fashion of our generation. Um, my guest today is probably someone that can speak on this topic better than anyone else, um, Leonard Steinberg. Leonard is, you can find him online and Instagram at the Leonard Steinberg team. You can also find him on Twitter at Luxury Blur. Luxury Blur. Luxury Blur. B-E-R. B-L. Luxury B-L-U-B-E-R. That's why no one follows us because the name is Well, hopefully this could get you some followers. So Leonard is the principal broker and founder of the Leonard Steinberg team. Um, he is also the chief evangelist officer here at Compass, which is a very important role for, uh, for us agents and for the important culture that we have here at Compass. Um, Leonard and his team, you know, that while they do a whole range of real estate, they have found their niche in sort of specializing on the luxury end of the market. Um, his team has consulted and represented projects such as 150 Charles, um, 560 West 24th Street, and you know current projects like uh, 100 East 53rd Street and 152 Elizabeth Street. Um, you know, Leonard, just to give some people some context, I know we're not big in the numbers, but I'll just say, you know, Leonard's team has done several hundred million in sales over the past couple decades. Actually, several billion. Billion in sales. You correct me there. Several billion. hundred million in the last 12 months. In the last 12 months. But even I better. hate numbers. I know. And there I go correcting you on numbers. I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> and I, I, and I was going to get to the point of, you know, all kind of numbers aside and rankings and sort of how you guys land in the New York sphere. Leonard is probably one of the most elegant people in this business. The manner that he conducts himself and his team conducts himself really sets him apart in a business which doesn't always come across as the most elegant business in the world, unfortunately. Which helps me look more elegant. Right, exactly. It makes it easier. It makes it a little bit easier. Um, so, Leonard, thank you for, for coming on the show today and speaking with us. Thank you for um, having me. And I hope I didn't miss anything there, but I was thinking before we get into our topic of design and fashion, we could talk a little bit about your background, because I think that plays a huge role in where you are today and sort of that niche that you specialize in. Um, so if you guys haven't noticed so far, Leonard has an accent which comes from being born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa. Correct. Um, how long were you living in South Africa before coming to the States? I lived in South Africa for 20 years before I arrived on these shores, but I actually have real estate and fashion in my DNA because I almost did my first sale at the age of six where I put together a for sale sign slapped it up on the side of my parents' house, and our next-door neighbor, Mrs. Babalatakis, came running across the street with her checkbook to buy us out because she wanted her daughter to live close by, and my parents were bewildered. So it was almost like you were, you were meant. To, this was sort of meant to be. It was my first real estate transaction that didn't happen. That didn't happen, yes. right, exactly. I learned early. You learned early, exactly. Um, and, you know, after South Africa, you came over to... 
Dallas. No, Not, it wasn't New York City first. I or? actually arrived in New York City. I stayed here for a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, I was here on vacation yeah. between seasons because I'd started my first fashion company in South Africa. I'd graduated college rather early, and I um, I did fashion. I did several collections in Cape Town, and then it was between seasons. So I thought I've never been to New York. I thought I'd come to New York. So I came to New York, stayed with some friends of the family. And um, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to interview in all these different fashion houses. And I went from door to door to door handing out my resume and maybe I'll stay for a week and I'll learn all about fashion in New York and then I'll go back to South Africa and do my next collection and be very happy. Because I'd never thought ever that the stupid flea from Cape Town could get a job. As it turned out, the economy was quite strong back then and I received three job offers and one of them required me moving to Dallas Although I would travel a lot between New York and Dallas and Los Angeles and Atlanta over time. Fantastic. And one of these, um, I guess, first brand that you started. I started first with Victor Costa, which also had the Christian Dior America dress collection. Mm. It was not Christian Dior Paris. It was Christian Dior America. It was guided by um, Paris when Gianfranco Ferre was the uh, design director. Okay. All right. So you've always sort of had that sort of for design too. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I redesigned my parents' homes when I was in my <laughs> early teens. I took charge of everything when it was uh, design-related in our house. Yes, and I mean, if for those of you that are not in the industry that um, have not met Leonard, he is very fashionable, and you can sort of see it through his... I'm not fashionable. I like dressing well, but like dressing I'm not well. fashionable. I've... I'm in my 50s. The minute you're in your 50s and you look fashionable, you kind of start to look ridiculous. Well, certainly I would. I'd never get it right. Right. I I, I love your style. So, um, do you think a lot of when what you grew up with and the culture and the environment from South Africa had a lot of influence on your eye for design or any sort of cultural impact from there? Not really. I think um, the visuals in South Africa are exquisitely beautiful because it's naturally beautiful. But for the most part, I felt I was living a t- completely deprived existence. We, I lived there at the time of um, apartheid. And it was uh, terrible because you just didn't have access to all the things the rest of the world did. There were sanctions We received international magazines many months after they were out in the rest of the world. We did not have the internet back then. We had had television since the age of 13. I remember when our first television set arrived and we stared at a test pattern for 20 minutes before a clock came on and there were three hours of programming, most of which was horrid. Yeah. It was like German and French, uh, bad, cheap television uh, dubbed and with subtitles. Actually, it was never even subtitles. It was dubbed. So it was very, very different. I grew up in a very different little planet. Right, right. So deprivation, by the way, I believe fuels creativity. And I do think that actually helped me tremendously because if you give an artist 500 colors of paint, I think it becomes a bit overwhelming. If you give them five, they really have to think. Yeah, and it sort of pushes them and challenges them to an extent to really think outside of the box. Um, it's a lot more work, a lot more effort, but in that, it fuels the creative juices. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so back to fashion. You were there, and then you... How did you kind of migrate from the world of fashion into real estate? Well, it was an overnight thing that happened in 10 years. <laughs> I was in fashion for over 10 years because I'd started my first collection when I was... I think it was 18 or... Yeah, I think it was 18 or 19 in South Africa, and I started my own company. And then when I was 20, I came to America and um, stayed in fashion 
until I think about the age of 30. Yeah, it was at least 30. At that time, I owned my own company already called Julian Leonard, which I'd owned for seven years because I ran it for two years while I was still working at my previous firm. And um, then I had a midlife crisis at 30 and decided it was time for a big change. I became a professional musician and like some really bad professional musicians, which I was one of, I didn't earn anything doing so, and I had to quit that very quickly. Living in New York does not allow you to earn nothing. (laughs) It's definitely an expensive city. And my parents were not going to be sending me checks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sort of have to uh, get creative in this city when it comes to finding ways of living. That's that's for sure. No options. Yeah, no options. Um, So when you started your career, were you, you know, at, at least for myself and I think other people that are new to the industry, when you get here... Especially in a city like New York, it can kind of be overwhelming. But it was overwhelming for me because even though I was traveling to New York a lot for fashion, I really never focused on real estate and I was mostly focused on being in a very tight fashion environment, mostly the showroom that I was in. So I had a a sales showroom on 7th Avenue and beyond that, I really didn't know that many New Yorkers. The vast majority of my clients actually came from outside of New York to New York to buy my collection. Yeah. So I didn't know New York well at all. I knew the way a tourist knows New York. And when I started, I really had to start from scratch. Right. And it is overwhelming. It is daunting. And back then, being, I think I think it was 31 when I started, back then, being a 31-year-old real estate agent was very unusual. The vast majority of people actually got into real estate a lot later after one or two careers. I'd, of course, had a few careers by the age of 30, which is embarrassing but the reality no I mean you find it all the time that I think there's a lot of power in coming from another industry before you get into this one the people you meet the experiences you have um, I'm a product of that myself coming from advertising but um, no that's it's it's critical all experience is valuable yes and when I left fashion I really felt that I was leaving back behind this extreme volume of hard work and effort that would have zero value and I was a hundred percent wrong yeah. No, it's, it's important because a lot of that you can sort of translate into what you're doing, which we can, we'll touch on in a bit. Um, but one area that you sort of specialized in and you kind of, I would say, for at least our conversations, is you kind of built your career on um, was lofts, yes. luxury lofts. Well, I, I termed it luxury lofts because what I was seeing is I lived... I always feel that your best business is in your backyard. Yes. We always run around the globe looking for something that really potentially exists more easily and more effectively in our backyard. And I lived in a loft building off Union Square. And I saw a trend because I always like to, you know, coming from fashion, I use that one skill you learn in fashion, which is what's next. Right. And when I looked at the markets in general, I realized I would never, you know, compete in the Park Avenue co-op world. I knew nothing about them. I wasn't connected to that in any way. But what I did see was the downtown Manhattan market had a very strong growth of loft conversions. And Mm. I lived in one. So why not use that as a basis for starting a career? Right. And I mean, to, to the point you initially spoke on, identifying those trends, that is so critical no matter where you are in really whatever business. I mean, even more so in ours. And I think that's kind of what these developers and even us as agents sort of need to identify what are the consumers looking for. You know? Exactly. It's- so one of the best lessons I learned in fashion was when I started my fashion company, my business partner's father was a really brilliant businessman, like right. a genius businessman. He started the company First Data, 
which uh, has grown now, I think it's an $18 billion organization. Yes. So the lessons I learned from him were invaluable. Now, granted, those were lessons he was teaching me in fashion land, but he wasn't a fashion guy. He was teaching me the basics. Yeah. And those basics I applied to real estate. Yeah. And um, one of them was always to look for niches and uh, you know, little holes in the market where you could step in and create value. And that's how I really, you know, focused my beginnings of my career. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's so critical. I think, you know, um, when you have these clients and one of the ways that you can really separate yourself and be a different agent than anyone else is finding those holes in the market and what really makes it click, you know, because anyone can just open the door and point out different elements of the apartment. If you can sort of identify this unique niche and blow it up to an extent, you know, I think that's, that's really critical. I think that is very valuable. And then I think everyone who wants to be successful, whether they've been successful for a long time or they're just starting, there are the fundamentals of great uh, real estate marketing that apply to pretty much every career. Right. And that is reliability, honesty, intense knowledge, right. um, thoroughness, friendliness, right. likability, yeah. all those basics you have to have as well as that niche. Absolutely. Because I think those ultimately drive a sense of loyalty and a sense of value perceived by the consumer that this person who's working on their behalf is actually going to deliver real value to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, as you sort of grew in the loft market, you kind of climbed your way, I would say, in this business, into this world of, of luxury. And to your point of identifying those trends, you've probably seen a lot of different trends in this lovely market of New York. And I guess that this market sort of can translate to a lot of other markets. But when you've sort of seen these trends, how have you seen, do you think that they're sort of driven by these developers and how they're doing it? Or is, is it the consumers that are driving it? How do you sort of see, I know it's kind of, there's a lot of different angles to that question, but where do you sort of see those trends being identified initially? Well, I think the first thing to acknowledge is in New York, we love to think of ourselves as individuals and free thinkers. Right. But in reality, we tend to have a terrible herd mentality. And I remember when I started in real estate, I kept wondering why every bathroom had absolute black granite counters and maple cabinetry. And these were all different uh, developers, but they all pretty much were delivering the same thing. Now, I understand fashion because I came from fashion land, and even in fashion, as much as they were trends, you definitely try to insert some level of individuality and mm. uniqueness into your product. And here I saw the same thing again. Maple cabinets, black granite counters, and it was again and again and again and again the same, same thing. And in that always lies tremendous opportunity. So the minute you can see a trend like that emerging is the minute you can spot opportunity. Yeah. Because ultimately, sameness produces boredom. And once boredom is there, he, who, he or she who steps in with something new and different will get the attention of a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, a couple weeks ago, so as us agents at Compass are blessed because every day Leonard writes a wonderful newsletter touching on news, but he also has, adds a little contemplation at the end of his um, newsletter. And a couple weeks ago, you touched on one, which was the importance of every little detail. And, you know, because when you walk into a space, it's not just how nice the kitchen looks, but it's how do the knobs in, on the cabinets look? How do they sort of accent each other? And I think that that translates a lot from, from fashion as well. You know, how does 
this designer put the stitching on the lapels? How do the socks match the tie? All of that. So how important is that, you know, just even those little details, the, the color of the faucets, the materials of the cabinets, everything? Everything matters. Everything. And I consult with many developers on a whole host of projects. And I've been very fortunate in that I've worked with some of the greatest designers and architects of our time. Right. I am so blessed to have had that experience because most people dream of this. And sometimes I have to slap myself and say, <laughs> hey... Don't complain. This is the most extraordinary opportunity ever. And you learn so much from these professionals who are dedicated to this exact thing. But just like fashion, one of the most important lessons I learned was, as much as all architects and designers are great at what they do, it is the person who consumes what you are designing and selling that matters most. And that's why I actually had a female um, business partner when I was in fashion, and she was the fit model. She would try on the clothes and say, this arm feels a little tight. I don't like the way this button sits because when I do X, Y, Z, I don't yeah. want to spill soup on it. Yeah. And I was like, wow, these are the insights that we as uh, marketing consultants and professionals have to be aware of, as do the designers, as do the architects, that we aren't just creating that which is pretty visually. It has to function as well in the real world and it has to appeal to the consumer willing to pay a premium for that which we are selling. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, I think, probably the most important part. You know, you walk by these buildings and they're, they're gorgeous, but what's on the inside? At the, at the end of the day, it boils down to that person needs to live in that space. Yeah, they we, need to wake up there every day. And, yeah. The biggest mistake architects make is believing that they are delivering sculptures to a city. Yeah. Yes, they are. But the sculpture is to the benefit of everyone on the outside. Right. Those who are paying for the sculpture who live on the inside have to have real value delivered to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to that point, I mean, you see these architects and designers that are almost using the streets and avenues of New York City as their, their runway. Yes. You know, I mean, Zaha Hadid's project over on the High Line, just the amount of curves and the whole structure is gorgeous. And I mean, your project um, over on 152 Elizabeth. Um, by Ando, you know, the, he's the opposite, the, just the simplicity. And how do you sort of see these developers, these designers sort of really making the streets of New York their runways and kind of making shape there? Well, the good thing is just like fashion, these days in fashion is not just one trend anymore. Right. Then multiple trends. And the same thing is true for architecture and homes. One look really isn't... Yeah. The, the mode of today anymore right. because they're multiple personalities different things appeal to different people but Manhattan is and New York in general is experiencing especially on the west side an architectural revolution the likes of which has never been seen in the history of mankind yeah. where one building after the other after the other after the other is designed by an extraordinary architect interiors done by exceptional interior designers and that collection is truly remarkable for them to all coexist is difficult because most buildings in New York are but one another. Right. So it's an unusual situation where, you know, if you're designing an exquisite museum in the countryside and you're on your own. Right. You have that's acres. That's different. We have very different <laughs> styles of framing in yeah. our work. So this is a juxtaposition of multiple styles and some work, some don't. And I do believe at the end of the day, as much as an attractive building is wonderful and owners have great pride in that, ultimately the way people live in their homes and what's happening internally is as important, if not more important. Absolutely. And you, I mean, you see that with a lot of these new buildings. They're transforming the way that they're sort of built out and designed. You know, they're seeing, well, let's 
have the gorgeous gym that's inspired by an, an equinox or the um, home office space. And, you know, it's almost as if you're, you're creating your own little world within this, these steel frames of a building. Well, we do love to bubbleize, And you know what I always say? Time is the last luxury. And if you can deliver real convenience, you will have to deliver great value to the consumer who is willing to pay for that. Yes. You know, it's also unusual to have this. It's actually only possible in a city like New York with this level of wealth to design these buildings because they're very expensive to build. Yes. You know, a 56 Leonard Street today would probably cost 30, 40% more than it cost to build when it was built. Right. Uh, you have to have a consumer who's willing to pay the price for that. Of course. So of you course. can't just build all these buildings without a consumer. Absolutely. And New York is very fortunate in that regard. Yes, we're, I would say, the center of the universe almost. And we just really kind of attract people from all over the world. I also think it's a city that's extremely excited about design. I think mm -hmm. the awareness of design has multiplied dramatically ever since I'm going to give all the credit to great design awareness to Instagram. Yeah. Because I think Instagram has forced millions and billions of people, I think it's a billion people now. I think so too, yeah. So it's forced people who, even with an iPhone or any phone, have this desire to take photographs and look a little closer. Whereas in the past, I think people didn't look that closely. Yeah. Now I think everyone's looking very closely. You have the HGTVs of the world. You have so much design awareness everywhere, and not only in homes, but in offices as well. Yes. So design has actually crept into everything. I actually should credit mostly Apple with this, because so many people who didn't know design really looked at their Apple computer and said, why does this feel better? Why do I like it so much? And then maybe someone said, it's because it's beautiful. Yeah, exactly. That level of, of sort of simplicity. And, um, you know, offices nowadays have transformed from just the, you know, carpets, dark walls, you know, maple desks to, I mean, even our compass offices. You know, they have that exquisite design in, you know, our headquarter office with its multiple levels and the simple black and white. It's... Well, it's very, very designed. So our compass offices are purposefully designed to make the environment in which we work enjoyable, invigorating, exciting, and functional. Right. In the past, they were just purely functional. Right. So I think there's been a, a global realization, especially in larger centers, that you spend so much time working. Why would you make that environment ugly? Right. And we have this audience now that's very aesthetically aware you should appeal to them. So yeah. real estate, I think design awareness has infiltrated all spheres of our lives because we've become much wealthier and we actually have time to think about these things. Of course. There are other people in the world who actually have to focus more on finding food yes. and shelter. Absolutely. We're very fortunate. Right. Now, granted, we do help the homeless, but they're very rich. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, back to a question I initially asked you about with you know the, the culture that you came from in South Africa. How much... How important is the cultures that some of these designers and architects are coming from? How important is that impact on what they design here? You know, I mean, 152 Elizabeth, Ando is a very famous Japanese architect. You know, how do you, important do you think maybe his or other designers, that their background and where they come from plays a role in these buildings they design or the interiors or, you know, what have you? Well, I do think um, designers who come from different cultures uh, kind of like tease us with uh, op options that we may not have considered before, yeah. which is exciting always because these are things you may not have uh, seen or heard of before, and I think that is very, very exciting. However, 
in that lies huge risk because real estate is a very localized business. Mm. And what someone loves in New York may be unacceptable in London or Hong Kong or Los Angeles or Nashville. So you've got to be very, very careful. And for instance, Tato Ando, who is possibly the world's greatest architect and the one architect maybe who has inspired more great architects than all others. I mean, if you speak to Richard Meyer or really some of the great names of our time, they will all look back to Tato Ando and say, this guy really was an influence on me. But Tato Ando's interiors are not known or not associated with $5,000 and $6,000 per square foot interiors. So in that building specifically, a local interior designer with extraordinary ability, very clearly aligned with the Tato Ando aesthetic, was hired Gabalini and Shepard, and they did the interiors. And together they worked on creating a style that was consistent on the interior and the exterior. But in doing so... They provided an alternative uh, language from outside, Taiwan being from Japan, combined with the needs of an essential New York purchase mm. at a certain price point. Yeah, that, I mean, you touched on it this morning in your newsletter, the importance of having that local element and being able to say, yes, you can come in and design from Copenhagen or wherever you are, but at the end of the day, this is New York. New York runs its, in its own way, and we, we operate differently than the rest of the world, the Londons, Hong Kong. So having that element of local, being local is, is so critical. Well, it's not just New York versus London. It's downtown versus the Upper West Side, mm. Brooklyn, Park Slope versus you know, Long Island City. Yes. Nashville, Boston, and then you go even in Atlanta. Buckhead is very different to other parts of Atlanta. Los Angeles, you have the Pacific Palisades, you have Malibu, you have Beverly Hills, and then you have, you know, so many different um, moments within a uh, center that are very different. It's hyper-localized, hyper-localized. What we do in the village is going to be very different from what we would do in the Lower East Side. Right. And, And just like that, on the side of fashion... You know, people are designing based off of almost to an extent what the vibe of the people are that are living in that area are. You know, you walk through the streets of Soho, the fashion there is very different from the fashion in Madison Avenue in the Upper East, and just as it's different in Brooklyn and Nashville, or London, and North London, Hong Kong, Hong Kong. Yeah. yeah. Very hyper localized, and in fact, in fashion, I'd say 85% of my wardrobe is custom made, and I actually design it because I yeah. want the certain fabric, I want this, I want that. Customized clothing has exploded in the past 10 years and it's become much more affordable as well. Yes. You know, traditionally a Savile Row suit was six, seven thousand dollars. Now you can get a custom suit for fifteen hundred dollars. Yes. Not that that's cheap, but if you wear it for 10 years, it's $150 a year, then it becomes much more reasonable. Of course. But I do believe individuality, especially amongst the wealthy, is becoming the biggest challenge in a world of sameness. Mm. The volume of sameness on our planet has become painful. Yeah. And how do you express yourself individually? I think people express themselves through their homes these days, even more so now than with fashion, because fashion is very exposed. Right. So if you walk on the street and you're wearing a floor-length leopard coat, someone's going to pelt you. Of course, right. <laughs> you know, the right. brick more right. than likely. But inside your home, you can do a whole host of things very personal. You only invite people into that home. Strangers don't come roaming through that. Right. So the home as an expression of your creativity and your personality has actually overtaken in some ways what fashion used to be. Yes, and I think, you know, to that point, it's 
that element of sameness, whether it is, you, you know, you want to avoid that. That's why you see these gorgeous old townhouses in parts of Brooklyn Heights where they're so historic and they've kept that, you know, level of history to them. And then there's the other end, you know, these new developments that every bell and whistle is there, it's brought up to date, and so it, it kind of depends on who that consumer is. Well, I think it's also very important to be authentic. Yes. And I think some people, you know, when I look at some of these structures that are built today to look like something that was designed in 1850, I have to wonder, surely you have to be a, um, you know, part of your time. Right, right. And then you think, okay, maybe they built this townhouse in 1850. When they designed it, did they look at the tents that were erected in the 1700s for their design cues? No, they actually explored that which the world at that moment needed. So being true to your times and being authentic to environment is very important in design. And then when it even comes to resales, I would say, homes today have to show in a manner that translate to the next audience. Mm. As much as we want to personalize our worlds dramatically, I think there is a responsibility you have as an agent working with a seller today to really broadcast this message loud and clear that we do not market homes to the seller. We market homes to new buyers. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And that's why having the, the right team around you, you know, whether it is those interior designers, the staters, all the above, you know, tapping them to help you build that home around that next consumer is so, so critical. It makes all the difference in price, days on market, everything. You know, I think, I think it was, um, what was the thing? Diana Freeland said, don't give the consumer what they want. Give them what they don't know they want yet. <laughs> that requires great design and great risk. Yes. It's fine to explore with a $3,000 jacket, even though that's crazy, right. you know, expensive for a jacket. But when it comes to a $10 million home, that's too risky. Right. So there you can understand why there is a sense of restraint in what is delivered. Right. Now, for those of us that are not at the level where we're about to purchase in a luxury new new building or property, and we're still in these 400 square foot studios on the sixth floor of a walk-up building, what can is there anything that you would suggest to someone that, or, or that people can do to add that level of design, even in a space that's so, you know, regardless of the size, the building, whatever it may be, are there little things that people can do to add that level of uniqueness? To well, to whoever is listening and feels badly about living in a 400 square foot studio, let me remind you, number one, it could be much worse. Right. And number two, I lived in a 400 square foot studio at one point and it was beautiful. I would also tell you that a 400 square foot studio is a room. Now, some people boast of having 20 rooms in their homes, but you can only live in one room at a time. (laughs) Exactly. So as much as you can claim I have another 19 rooms next door, you're in one room at a time, make that one room beautiful. And with good creativity, you can make anything beautiful at any price. I have a friend who has an apartment where he has flea market finds. Now, some people have amazing eyes. Right. He has some flea market finds where... For $15, he put something in that most people spend $2,500 on. Right. So just, you know, quality is not about price. Judgment is the ability to recognize quality without consulting a price tag. Wow. So if you look at design, it doesn't have to be expensive to be beautiful. Does it have to be expensive to be extraordinary? More than likely, yes, because really fine craftsmanship and 
unusual exotic um, collector items cost a fortune. Why? Because it costs a fortune to make them. They're very scarce. Right. Of course they cost a fortune. But I remember my 400 square foot studio had an ex- exceptional big, big, big view of the city. Oh. That view would all be gone now because the whole bu- <laughs> of area has been built up. But that apartment, I custom designed all the furniture. I had a queen size bed in there. I had seating for six for dining. I had a sofa. I had a kitchen. And I had a piano because I've never lived without a piano. And I have to tell you, it all fit in beautifully. That's it was incredible. all white. It was a little bit um, maybe severe, but it was beautiful. Right. And it cost so little. Yeah. It yeah. cost so little. Yeah, and you and you made that your to you that was your luxury. You it was know? my room. It was, yeah. I don't know anyone in the world who lives in three rooms at a time. I haven't seen them do it yet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's impossible. Exactly, you can only be in one place at one time, right? And this, by the way, is a big design trend as well because I've met people who live in these massive houses and they can easily afford them, and they look at me with big sad eyes, saying, "We love this house." Do you see where we are right now? We're in the kitchen and the living room, like the, you know, the great room with the yeah. kitchen. Is it? We never venture out of this. We go up to our bedroom to sleep. But that formal dining room, the basketball court, the indoor pool, the outdoor pool, and all the other stuff they have in the right. house in 15 bedrooms with two kids, yeah. they're not using they're that. Not using. So as much as there is a group of people who can easily afford these massive homes, yeah. a lot of them are not as excited about maybe having one or two really good rooms that they use all the time. Right. 400 square foot studios can be extraordinary. Yes, they absolutely can. And you, uh, and it's that room that you are in all the time. And you know what one thing people complain about as well is light. A dark studio can be made a light studio very cheaply because LED lights do not emit heat. Yeah. And they're very, very cheap to operate. Yeah. So if you want to make your apartment really bright, you can. If you want to make an extraordinary view a part of that apartment and you don't have a view, you can blow up a beautiful picture of the perfect view that has the perfect weather all year round. Right. There are solutions for all those problems in the 400 square foot studio. Yeah, and especially nowadays where you can go on Instagram or online, see these trends and buy them and have them at your door within 48 hours, you know, it's... it's or less. Or less, yeah. And you can even rent furniture now. Yeah. And you can get packaged rooms that are pre-designed for you. There are so many opportunities now for great design at every price point. Yeah. So whoever says, oh, design is only for the rich, to a certain degree that is true. For someone to have the time to devote to designing a full home with every little minutiae detail yeah. taken care of to the most extreme level and the furnishings and the fabrics and the best of the best... That costs a fortune, I agree. But I'm certain that you can have the most exquisitely furnished and decorated 400 square foot studio at a fraction of a fraction of the cost that most people believe it to be. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's so important for so many people that come to the city and see the price tag and like, oh my gosh, and they need to be in those studios for their time, and, but they can really make it a, a beautiful place. I dr- you know what? I have to tell you, I spend so much time in my bed with my computer... I wonder why I have the other rooms in my right. apartment sometimes. Right, exactly. You're like, I've only really... And I'm here. paying for those. Yeah. But, you know, different. I'm older. I can, I can justify it, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Leonard, before we wrap things up, yes. I wanted to ask you if it was, you know, someone that approached you and they were maybe just out of college or not even going into college and they wanted to get into the design world or they wanted to get into the world of, of real estate. You know, if, if there was one sort of element of 
input or advice that you would sort of give them in as they try and build a career, whether it's in New York, London, Atlanta, wherever it may be, what would you maybe suggest to them as, as they're trying to figure out, you know, sort of their way and what they want to do? So I do think I hearken back on the words of Kennedy, which said, ask not what your new world can give to you. Ask what you can give to your new world. Yeah. So if you're entering the world of design or you're entering the world of real estate, what can you bring to the table that adds value to this environment that ultimately will teach you tons? Have you done your homework? If you want to be a designer or a real estate agent or in real estate development, what homework have you done? Have you actually done any homework? How much have you worked? Right. Because a lot of people, I think, come into anything new expecting the world to give to them right. when in fact they should walk, walk into that scenario and ask, what can I give to this? What can I bring to the table? So when I sit down at some of these design meetings and there's the senior designer, but then there's the junior designer, but that junior designer has exceptional taste. Yes. And knows about all kinds of hardware and little details that maybe the big name designer hasn't had the time to look at as much. There I see real value and there I see the future of a great career because they're passionate about what they're doing. And you know what everyone says, follow your passion. I think that is true to a degree. But I would rather rephrase it and say, instead of finding your passion, I'd say, be incredibly passionate about that which you choose to do. Mm. Because if you dedicate tremendous levels of um, time and energy and research and study and you know, real devotion to what you're doing, chances are you get even more passionate about it because people recognize that you are an expert. And more than likely, the deeper you get into any subject, the more interesting it becomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you're not passionate about what you're doing, then it's sort of what's, what's the point? You need to have that Sad. level where you where you're really sort of love it because that's what fuels that creativity and that's what fuels the, the drive to get up and sort of do it every day. Most people focus way too much on the finish line and they don't focus as much on the process. Yes. I think achieving certain results and benchmarks is critical. But I think as importantly, uh, it's important to the whole process is actually enjoying that process, making each moment an enjoyable moment. Yeah, absolutely. And then you will get to your finish line, you probably will achieve bigger, better results. And you'll look back and you'll say, wow, that was pretty incredible. Well, the worst thing everyone thinks is that anyone on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd sold another apartment. <laughs> yeah. No one says that. No one says that. But I would bet most people would say in the real estate brokerage field, I wish I'd enjoyed selling apartments more right. than just the selling of them. Right, exactly, exactly, which, which is so important. Yep. Um, well, Leonard, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me today. You know, I, I appreciate it. I know I learned a lot, and hopefully the listeners gained some, some additional insight as well. So, so thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Hey everyone, Max again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really hope you liked it. A couple quick things though before you go. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share. My goal here is to get you guys interested in real estate, engaged, and also teach you a little bit, maybe something that you didn't know. So please subscribe, share, send it to colleagues, friends, family, whoever. My goal is to deliver at least one episode a month, hopefully more. Um, So your support is much appreciated here. Number two, if you want to receive the newsletter that I do each month, Max's Minute, please subscribe. I have the link in the bottom of the the bio. Or you can email me at maxwell.crowley at compass.com. I blast out the newsletter at the first of every month. It has a little bit about real estate, some interesting facts, you know, whether it's New York-based, globally. I'll always feature a couple listings from across the country from fellow Compass agents. 
And then I also include a little contemplation, you know, little interesting facts that I've come across during my time in real estate, things that might be able to help you. So if you're interested and you want to get that, please reach out. Thank you guys again, and I'll see you next time.